I see this at so many companies, they have a lot of engineers and they wonder why, you know, they have a lot of code but not a lot of product. Code is not an asset. So what did you do with the feature? We killed it. Did you tell him? Uh, I hope so. Deleting code is amazing. It's, it's like my favorite thing to do. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. In this episode, we talk about the fear of shipping and whether code is an asset. So at the end of the last episode, Edith, you said, um, I think this was a quote from, from Yammer VP, uh, the organization you design is, is the software you build. Yeah, it was actually from the CTO, Adam Pisoni. And it really struck home for me because I see this at so many companies. They have a lot of engineers and they wonder why you know, they have a lot of code but not a lot of product. Mm-hmm. And it ties back to what you just said of uh, specializing in the product management role. Right. I think that this is a name. I think it's Conway's Law. Um, and the, the, the way that, that I saw that expressed is, is that if you have... Uh, if you're building a compiler and you have four different teams that are building a compiler, you'll end up with a four-pass compiler. <laughs> There's no one vision. Right. When looking at lots of different teams and team structures, the uh, the interesting one that, that I found was was the Heroku one, and they have uh, they have a language team and they have an add-ons team and, and they have sort of sharp delineations in in their software and uh, or in in their in their stack that allows them. Uh, to really focus on one particular area because there's such sharp demarcations between the different areas of the product. Well, I think that's good if you're a fairly mature product. Mm-hmm. I think in the early days of Heroku, that would not have worked at all. I think, so th- th- they had this, I wouldn't say it's quite from the early days, but I mean, relative to now, it was re- it was quite early. I think they had that since Cedar, which is which was around 2010. It just more meant when you're an early stage startup, mm-hmm. sometimes you change your entire product. Well, okay, yes, yes. I mean, I, Absolutely, I, I think once you get into uh, once you get past the, the first stage of the product, and you you if you're able to draw very good interfaces between how your customers understand what your product is. I don't know. I mean, I've seen this go bad in so many organizations where you have entrenched engineering organizations that care more about staying on their current project, okay, than actually about where the market is going. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Um, We've always worked on this, so we need to stay here because we gotcha. don't know anything else versus being able to evolve to where the market is going. Right. This reminds me a little bit of, of something that, that, that I'm working on at the moment. The, the, we, we brought in some, some UX um, uh, experts to, to look at our app and, and to, to help us you know, sort of transform it into something that, that, that was a little more, uh, more usable. And, uh, and they, they did a fantastic job, and I spent this afternoon reading reading some of the reports. But what what, what was difficult was was understanding where the product needed to be. Yeah. So for us in particular, that there's not enough focus on the on the deployment. There's a lot of focus on the build, and and there isn't really a sort of a broader look at you know what do engineers actually do when they're when they're trying to do continuous delivery. And so we ended up with that what was in the product was redone in a in a really you know fantastic way, but there there wasn't much. Uh, affordance made for you know here's the thing that actually needs to be in the product yeah um, 
and you, when you talk to customers, that you know, it's hard for customers to tell you, oh, here's the thing that you actually need to be, or you know, they, they, they look within the within the box you've drawn for them. Yeah, I, I, I say this because I had a similar evolution to you. I actually I started off in engineering, mm-hmm. and when I was in engineering, it was very obvious what we should build next, extremely obvious. And so I was thought that our product manager was an idiot for not seeing it as clearly okay. as me. When I became a product manager, I realized how myopic I had been as an engineer. What, when you, can you give an example of, of what was the next thing to build that oh, in retrospect was wrong? I, I would see all the little bug fixes that mm. we should be doing instead of the next big right. features. The right, next, right, or right. not even the next big features, but the next big product. I, I think big or small is, is or a big picture versus small picture is a good way to, to distinguish these two. Um, and I, I think that that it, it's very easy when you're talking about product management to, to get the idea that oh, product management knows everything and, and that the engineer is is just an implementer. Oh, I, and and I think this is where a lot of the resistance to, to product managers comes from within engineering organizations. That the, the idea that they're going to be relegated to to mere kind of peasants in the uh, code monkeys. Code monkeys. They, to, to use the. There we the, go. No. You know, nobody wants to be a code monkey. That doesn't right. sound very fun. Right. I would disagree with that, but I, I think that's wait, not. Wait, wait a second. We never disagree. So. <laughs> okay, okay. So, the, so, so this better be right, good. Right, right. Um, it is very frustrating trying to understand everything. And on the other hand, it's very satisfying to ship things and to get your stuff in front of customers. So uh, very often, the, the ability to, to just be a code monkey for a certain period of time is, is this sort of soothing. Uh, feeling of just shipping software that fixes a load of small problems. I remember, I remember reading one of the one of the GitHub, one of the famous GitHub guys. I don't remember which one it was, but I th- let's assume it was Kyle uh, Kneith or Neith or something that wrote that he spends a lot of time on big projects, and in between the big projects, he needs to find you know what is the next big project to work on. And it's often very frustrating or very, uh, you, go down, you go down certain rabbit holes and whatever, and you end up kind of not shipping things or you end up getting frustrated or whatever. And what he likes to do then is, is just reach to the backlog and just take a bunch of small fixes. And he spend like two weeks of just like implementing very small things. You don't need to think about it. And it's cathartic and it, it lets, you, lets you ship. And so a couple of weeks as a code monkey, I think, is, is a very useful thing to sort of you know, refresh the head and, and, and that sort of thing. I agree, but I, I think nobody wants to do that full-time. And I'll also challenge something else you said, which is everybody wants to ship. I think there are a lot of people who find shipping terrifying, and they'd rather keep holding stuff on until it's perfecter and perfecter and perfecter. Like, I've certainly been within situations like this where it's like, right. oh, we... Where we can't ship because it's, it's not perfect yet or it's not complete. Yeah, and no. as an engineer, you have this real battle of, well, what if people want this? Or right. what if they want this? Or this might be not quite right. Yeah. The personal strategy that, that, that I use to manage that is to try to write the blog post that you're going to launch this with. And to very often be like, oh, I can't launch this because it hasn't got this feature. It hasn't got this feature. And in the blog post, assuming that you're going to tell people you know, how to use it, or, or you're writing the doc maybe, if, if not the blog post, you get that sort of feedback. As you're trying to explain to a user how to do this, you're going to say, oh, all you need to do is this. And you'll realize that this is you know, seven steps long instead of one step long. Yeah, the, the Amazon model. So at Amazon, they actually start with writing the press release first. OK, right. And everything's that's, and that's a really good guide back. Right, right, right. You know, because um, cause too often, people do the other end of they've 
built this gargantuan thing. Yeah. And they're trying to write a press release or blog post. They're like, whoa. Right, right, there's, right. We built all this stuff, but there's nothing actually to talk about. Right. And b- part of that, and, and something which, which I think engineers uh, have, a, have a difficult time thinking about, is how to, uh, is how to get this widely in use. So you can build the feature, but it's no use to having built it if no one uses it. Oh yeah. So you need you need to build the breadcrumbs to it. You need to you need to figure out the ways that that are subtly hinted that this is the feature that you want when it's the feature that you want and to draw people's attention to it. And sometimes that's putting it in docs, and sometimes that's doing a big announcement. But more often, it's trying to get the product in in, in a place where where the the UX naturally implies the the right path or the right um, direction for users to discover parts of the product. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of responsive design, and I think even more, and this goes back to why I started Launch Darkly, is you might have built it, but nobody might want to use it. Right. Like, you could have put all this effort into building it and done all these breadcrumbs that nobody follows. Right. So that's the idea that if you actually start doing the breadcrumbs first and see if people start following that path. So with Launch Darkly, I'm guessing that, that, that the way that you see whether someone is using it is, is whether it's enabled for them. Is, is that right? Um, well, no, there's... so. What we do is we allow people to turn on features for certain users. Right, right. And just turning on a feature for a certain user doesn't necessarily mean that they start using it. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so do, do you tie this to like mixed panel usage or some sort of analytics stuff? Um, we could tie it to different backends. Like we okay. tie it to New Relic. We tie it to actually gotcha. optimizely. So you could see if people are even. And we right. have our own internal analytics. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so 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 this is the thing for me that that I started a, a project recently, and the first thing I did is built the dashboards for for adoption. Um, and we're we're still at the stage in in, in the project where where there's no adoption or you know there there's tiny amount of adoption amongst amongst the early users a trickle uh, a, a trickle and a trickle that you can't even see on the graphs but it's it's <laughs> so a thing it's more to, like a fine mist a fine mist um, but what you need to get to is you need to get to the place where where everyone is using this because if you just build it they're not going to come they need to be told about it they need to understand how to use it and getting those first customers to using it and where it's where it's deployed amongst them is it gives you incredible feedback about how one actually ships that software to the larger customer base totally agree i mean this is classic lean principles of just making sure some people can use it well before rolling it out further we discovered a part of the product that exactly three customers were using. <laughs> How did that make you feel? Um, well, we didn't actually know it was a feature. So uh, so this was the idea that you could do deployments in parallel. Oh. So at, at CircleCI, we parallelize your build. And so the idea is that basically we take your test suite and split it across 20 or 50 or whatever machines. But it turns out that that applied to deployment as well. Uh, and there were exactly three customers using that. And one of them had uh, a valid use case for it. Out of thousands of customers, exactly one valid use case was was there. So, what did you do with the feature? We killed it. Did you tell them? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I think we reached out to that. Uh, there was another way for them to do it. Yeah, and then the, the painful part of product management is also when you have a feature that you like to kill, but that a a, a subset of power users loves. Like, so at TripIt. Um, we were a mobile travel itinerary, but we let people do a printout. Mm-hmm. And one one time we're like, oh, nobody prints anymore. Let's just kill it. Okay. It turns out that people print and they really, really like printouts. Uh, right, right. I understand that, yeah. Like, there's like, you know, sometimes you're in a foreign, particularly if you're traveling to a foreign country. Yeah, you're not going to have internet or your phone's going to be dead or. Or you want to show something to a, a passport uh, guard. Yeah, or a local. Yeah. Yeah, without handing over your phone, like here's here's what I'm doing. 
Yeah, so they were furious with us. Right. Uh, so had you killed it at that stage? Oh, we killed it. Like we oh. killed, like we were just like, oh, we didn't we didn't have good analytics on people printing because. So, okay. So we just uh, said, oh, nobody's printing, so let's kill it. Oh, wow, wow. So our analytics later was that people complained. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like, quite loudly. And so had you properly killed it at that point, or had you merely you know, disabled it to see if it went away? Uh, we Let's see. We disabled it. I think we could get it back, but people were really, really upset. Right, right, right. I, I like the, the thing of shipping something turned off uh, rather than actually deleting the code, even though it's, it's, it's incredibly cathartic to delete the code and to, to hide it and remove it. But the turning something off with a feature flag is just a lot better way to, to sunset something. Why do you think it's cathartic? Oh, deleting code is amazing. It's, it's like my favorite thing to do. <laughs> it's uh, funny. My, my co-founder, John, he was from X Atlassian. Yeah. And he said the winner of their hack competition was always the person who deleted the most code. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. Because that's what they wanted to reward is tidiness. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's very much related to the, the idea of, of you know, product management and, and validating things and making sure that, that you don't build too much of the product. When, like, code is, is not an asset. Code is, well, actually, code is an asset in the, in the financial sense of it, in that you think you want it, but you actually don't. You actually want the best performance with the least amount of code slash asset available. Yeah, it's like, um, so if a, a friend asked me once, like, should I pay my developers more if they write more lines of code? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no. Like that's a really easy metric to game, right? So, um, so we were talking about deleting, uh, deleting features by feature flagging them. I, I think that this this is a, an awesome way to delete a feature because it's very very easy to get back. It's much easier to get back than a rollback. Rollbacks are are this thing that nobody wants to do because they're they're very very painful, especially if a ton of code has come in between. So if you if you ship something or if you if you delete something by literally putting a feature flag in around it, um, and then you ship the code and, and then it's still on, and you turn it off for a certain amount of people, see if anyone complains, see see that it still works and and that you know show it to ten people, and then and then you delete it for everyone just by by flicking the flag, and then if you get someone saying you know we really 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 need printouts, uh, you can turn it back on for them while you have a think about what what you know how you really want to solve this problem. Yeah, I mean, I think feature flags is a really misleading term. Like, so feature flags implies that it's always on or off, when really mm-hmm. it's more of a feature control. It's it's, okay. a, it's a way to encapsulate a portion of functionality such that you have total control over it. Right. Okay. From from the sunrise of it, mm-hmm. you know, from launching it to certain people seeing their reaction, getting analytics, and then all the way to the end, as you said, every feature eventually you want to kill. Mm. So there's an interesting parallel here between between feature flags and the sort of configuration variables. So but by configuration variables, what I mean is in a, in a Rails app, you, you often have you know, a set of four different environments. So you have, you have dev, test, staging, and production. And uh, you often get in trouble in, in that you're, you, you fill your, your code base full of you know, if dev this or you know, if, if env is, is production, then, yeah. then do this. Because what you really want is you want to be able to say, you know, if we have enabled the, um, the, the uh, X feature, um, you know, if we're using SSL is, is one example of a thing that might be on in some configurations but, but wouldn't be on in, in other ones. And in, in the, um, 
uh, in the closure ecosystem, there's this idea of a component where you build your, your application as a set of components and all of the variables to a components are passed into it. And the variables are essentially feature flags. Are things disabled? Are they, are they enabled? What is the setting that, that is built on it? And it, it makes it very easy to, to compartmentalize functionality um, and to only expose like a simple interface that, that allows you control how the functionality works without necessarily having to dig into the functionality all the time. Uh, that, that's exactly uh, my vision for LaunchDarkly, oh. that everything should be controlled. Right. It's you should look into um, the closure idea of components. It's, it's a very sort of... A, the, the closure people speak with in, in very sort of theoretical abstractions and that sort of thing, and, and they, they use weird words um, uh, like complexing. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 a weird thing, but they they actually really know what they're talking about, which is which is even more annoying. It's <laughs> always the worst, right? Yeah. So someone invents their own vocabulary, and then they're right, and so you actually have to discover what they mean by this vocabulary, and then no one else understands the, vo <laughs> the vocabulary. But uh, so complexing is an interesting word in this case. It, it means means unnecessarily tied together. It means that it it's not it's not complex, but it's it's two things that are like it's it's the opposite of simple, basically. <laughs> the, was, the, the idea that you have two components and they're like uh, they're, they're, they're too widely connected or complected. Yeah. So what do you think is a better word than feature flag when really it's more about feature controlling or feature wrapping? I used to feel that there were different concepts for feature flags versus A-B testing and that, that they were actually different concepts and I, I'm now convinced that they're the same concept. I think, so this is, this is interesting because I think A-B testing is just something that is enabled by having a wrapped feature. Something that's, say that to me again. If you've wrapped all your features, mm -hmm. um, as I talked before, you can launch them, you can mm -hmm. monitor them, you can sunset them, and you can also compare them. Right, right, right. Yes, yeah, so, so, so uh, an A-B test is really a feature flag which is enabled randomly uh, for a certain subset of customers and you're, you're looking at the analytics. Yeah, so it's just, it's just an extension of if, if everything is an object and a nice, and a nice yeah. day, as you said, a uh, wrap object, it's then you can say, oh, is this object doing better than this other object? Right, okay. The, the thing that, that I found really weird in, in looking at how people talked about A-B tests versus feature flags, and weird because those are the same concepts, but A-B tests are a marketing thing or a growth thing. You, know, you tie them to business goals or to KPIs or to funnels or something along those lines. And features, and especially you know, the, the kind of operational side of features, you tie to you know, database latency and, and basically operational metrics. But there's no difference between business and operational metrics. Every, every A-B test should be tied to operational metrics because it, it's no good knowing, oh, no one buys on this thing, if the reason no one buys on it is because the exceptions are through the roof. Yeah, and yeah. similarly, there's no, there's there's no concept of you know the, the, this feature works really well if the database load is really low. Oh, the database load is really low because no one is clicking down that <laughs> that, that path, and, and your your um your business metrics are through the floor. You're absolutely right. I think one of the goals of LaunchDarkly is to provide analytics on it and everything. I do think what I found when I was talking to customers is there's a lot of fear around A/B testing. Okay. Um, uh, just the word I think has been overloaded that. People, I'll give Max, Max from Heroku, who sits mm -hmm. downstairs from us, they love feature flagging. They right, feature right, right. flag everything. Okay. But he doesn't think of it as A-B testing. He's like, if you, if you said, do I A-B test, he would say no, because that implies that you're really doing more of a test of an old versus a new and picking which one is better. Okay. But really, it's more he has a new feature and he wants to make sure the metrics are correct. 
Right. Okay. So the the I, I when I would advocate for A/B tests in the past, it was mostly to say, you know, does this perform not worse than what was there before? So someone would have a new design of something, and they, they think it's great, and we'd all agree that it looked, you know, a lot better. But does it convert better? Or uh, in fact, not not even does it convert better because if it looks better and it converts the same, we should definitely go with it. But does it convert not worse? Yeah, the issue is most people don't have the traffic for A/B testing. At a small, so you you, you can make A/B tests work at a small scale. Mm, and so if you're a SaaS company with mm-hmm. maybe 300 customers, right? You don't have enough volume to do A/B testing. Um, and you, you don't be, you don't you have to be quite profitable no. and very happy with those 300 customers that are each like 100k a year. So a- A/B testing is a test of statistical significance. Right. And, I, and, I, and, I and at a you're, small and I, scale, you need a lot of people, or to, to be able to tell small significance or, 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 or small differences in in uh, in the result, you know, five percent versus six percent, you need a large a yeah. large number of people to have any confidence in in the statistical yeah. significance. So if you have, but a you can tell the difference between, you know, eighty percent of people get through your funnel and twenty percent of people get through funnel. your funnel with with 50 customers. A, well, so, so if you say, so that's if you have a feature that's used at the very top of the funnel. Yeah, if, yeah, if, yeah. So what I was trying to say is if you have something that people might not see very often, it's yeah, very yeah, hard yeah. to A-B test it. Yeah, and, and like, it's also like very hard to get... A funnel, like right. you have your marketing site, which gets the most, you have your sign-up, which gets yeah, the yeah, most, yeah, yeah. and then the further yeah. down you get into product, the harder right. and harder it is to do A-B and, tests. And especially if it's something where the... Uh, where you don't have a funnel necessarily, or, or where you have a funnel but you haven't constructed a funnel. So w- 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 one of the one of the one of the ways I think about software is, is that everything is a funnel. Yeah. You know, you, you're, life is a funnel. Right. Li- 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 life is a funnel. Um, so hiring is a funnel, and so your jobs page is part of a funnel, but you don't actually have a mixed panel thing built on your on your jobs page. And so making any change to your jobs page means that you don't actually know if it's had a positive effect or a negative effect. Uh, you, you can't really tell anything about it. That's very true. I, um, but on the other hand, if you're getting only like one person applying a month anyway, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's still in the, ra- that's still in the realm of statistical insignificance. Right, so you have no controls over something goes out. You just have opinions. Yeah. Whereas so on, on on the homepage you can have data, and then on your on your jobs page you can you can argue that you know this word that we use here um, is really off-putting to female developers or or you know something along those lines. But but if someone disagrees with you, you've got nothing to to back up your arguments either way. Well, actually, um, so a, a company Textio now is doing a lot of statistical analysis of job postings. Okay. To see if they have uh, if the words in them are gender neutral or not, and that that's based across like a massive corpus of job pages versus. Yep. But it, it it's not monitoring your your actual throughput or something like that. No, it's just based right. on. Um, she's a machine learning PhD. Right. Uh, so, so that works for something like you know gender or, or um, th- things that are you know, d- diversity in, in, in the general case, but it's not going to work on uh, you know are are all the closure developers do do they are they aware that this is a closure shop as, yeah, an, as an example? And that's why you can't A/B test life. If only. No, I mean that would be horrible. You'd have to do everything a thousand times. Right, 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 right. And what if some of those thousands were just terrible? Right. I mean, I mean but you can A/B test. Web pages. No, not if they don't get enough traffic. Not if they don't get enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes back to what you said. You can have um, throughput or latency. 
Right, right. You could, you could test every page if you have a thousand years. Right. But if you have a low traffic page, you just, sometimes to go back to what you said before, you just have to go with, I feel this color is better. Right. I feel this color pops. And so th this is one of the most frustrating things about developing software, that, that everyone knows that you should have data and analytics, and it's just very difficult to really have any idea of whether you should have analytics for a particular thing. Because you, you know you should have it on your funnel, you know you should be measuring what, what customers are using, but in almost every instance, you can make a justification for just doing it this way. And you have to at a certain point. I mean, and, and, and that's what's frustrating. If, <laughs> if, if you could uniquely say, in every situation, we're going to use data, we're going to use the funnel, we're going to use these analytics, um, then, then you'd be in a great place. But where there are you know, 90% of your, of your web page or your product actually don't get enough use to, to get any statistical significance, and then you end up with only having a funnel on your, uh, your sign-up page, and, and then you don't really have a very data-driven company as a result of that. Yeah, and that's, that's the hard truth. I mean, there's still a lot of art in the science. Like, you just, at some point, you have to make a decision. Like, I like Unless this. you're at Google. I'm sorry? Unless you're at Google. Yeah, unless you, unless you literally have the world's population using you. Right, right, right. You do have to make a decision. Like, I think our jobs page should look like this. Right. I think that our onboarding should look like this. Right. Why? Don't know. Other people did it that I way. I just kind of feel it. <laughs> no. I think so this is that pops an American more. accent? No. I thought you slipped from them. No. no. Uh, I, th I, I think I think this this color pops a little bit more. I think that's the that's what most arguments about UX end up with if you don't have high level principles and goals and personas that that you're building the product around. That's fair, and I think it goes back to what you said before, there's always this tension of data mm -hmm. versus gut and what we talked about engineers about making it perfect versus ship it now. Mm -hmm. Like, and then I think they go together, like the more data you want, you know, the more you can be convinced that now is the time to ship versus the person who's like, okay, it's just time. Right, right. Yeah, when I'm trying to ship something, I try to, I try to make sure that my fears are addressed more than I try to make sure that, that the thing is feature perfect. That's a really good way to look at it. Uh, so when when we so we shipped this feature that, that I've been working on and it was just supposed to go to the first five customers. So what I wanted to do is make sure that the back end was shipped and then I could test it on my own, you know, on our own project uh, and, and validate, you know, does it actually work at all? What does it look like when, when someone actually uses this in, in production? And the first thing that, that I really need to validate is, can I turn it on without causing any problems to everyone, yeah. or, or to me? And that meant that I had to make sure that there was no problems to anyone. So basically what I had to do with the feature was insulate it from, so that if it went wrong in the way that, in a, you know, the thousand ways that I couldn't expect it to go wrong, that I knew for sure that it wouldn't affect the rest of the customers. So did you use a feature flag? Uh, I mean, a feature flag, but also you know, the, pro the problem in a lot of languages is, is it's not just a feature flag. You have to wrap the exceptions yeah. and make yeah. sure that, that the exceptions get caught and just like end nicely and versus, um, versus going forward. So it, it was something that, that, that was on the critical path through everyone's build. So if the code went wrong, everyone's build could be affected. And so I just need to make sure no matter what goes wrong in this code base, let the builds continue. The builds must flow. The builds must flow. And so the the what I was addressing wasn't 
you know, how do we feature flag this off? It was just like, can, can I ship this without being fearful of something going wrong? I, I think you sum it up very well, fearful. Right. I mean, the continuous delivery is, is mostly about fear more than anything, I think. I, I think it's about mitigating fear because it's very freeing that if you could turn something off at any time, right. you can move forward. Right. And, and if you ship something and you know that it's not going to break things... You could ship it. Right. I think exactly. it's I think it's when you have these big bang releases where it's everything all together in one kludge that you have yep. a lot of fear. Yeah. I had a customer who said they stopped doing continuous integration. Sorry, right. Because it was faster to not. Okay. Um, so you know they were just shipping. let me just predict how this ended up. <laughs> have you seen this have you seen this movie already? <laughs> I've seen this movie so many times. <laughs> you saw every iteration of this movie. <laughs> Every thousand. Yeah. How does how does the story end? Oh, the the story ends with software not being able to be delivered. Engineers quitting is a is a good uh, or is a common ending or or at least last chapter surprise that like oh we're shipping so fast no we can't ship anything because it's so frustrating to ship things because we we just don't know if it's going to work. So how do you so that's the end of the story. What's yeah. the, what's the next chapter? After the end of the what, what's the sequel? <laughs> What's the sequel? The sequel is they bring in a new VP of engineering. Uh, the VP of engineering says, what the hell, there's no testing. Uh, and the VP of engineering sets up testing. Everyone complains about testing and that, that everything was much faster before testing, but they, they have to do what the VP of engineering says. And then in about a month, they realize their velocity is about 10 times faster than it used to be. And everyone who complained about testing is actually happy. Yeah, that's what happened at our customer. They said they stopped doing testing because it seemed to take too much time. Right. They got to the point where they couldn't ship, and they're like, "Actually, this is the same as like, you know, basic housekeeping." Right. You know, you can't just not do your dishes every day for two months and expect. Was there anyone fired on this journey? No, they came to a pretty quick realization. I, I, I think they probably they probably got lucky there. <laughs> oh, people uh, have been fired for less. Oh, really? Well, just if, if you're in charge of a software team and you bring out something that, that brings the team to a halt, yeah, maybe it'll occur to, to your boss that you actually didn't know what you were talking about in the first place. I heard this legendary story that Salesforce, they got to such a state that they could, it took them two years to ship anything. Wow. But they fixed it. Okay. They fixed it. Right. Because they realized this is a problem. It takes us two years to ship right. anything. Yeah. Well, Paul, it was fun catching up with you about product management and how to A-B test or not. And whether A-B testing is the same as feature flags. It is. Oh, Paul, we always agree, but not on this one. <laughs> I would say, all right, I would say that you can A-B test if you have feature flags, but I don't say you have to A-B test if you have feature flags. Um, I think this is just language. I mean, A-B testing is... So the, the way that I look at feature flags, we, we, we have feature flags that sit in a bunch of different places. We have feature flags of, do I enable this on this machine? We have feature flags for, do I enable it for this customer? And then we have feature flags for, do we randomly enable this across the, across the customer base and what proportion do we use? And they're all some form of A-B testing. They're all some form of a feature flag. I, I don't see a, di a distinction between them at all. I think because in customers' minds, they think of A-B testing as some sort of statistical thing where they'll get a deterministic result, whereas sometimes they're using a feature flag just to roll out a new feature and expose it to some users. Would you, would you classify it as an A-B test if it's statistical and not an A-B test if it's not statistical? Hey, so, so, Paul, I actually agree with you. Just, oh, we always agree. I'm just saying it. I'm just saying I've talked to a lot of customers, and 
when you say A-B testing, it puts a lot of fear into them that they have Right, to. right. So I, I agree that, that a lot of people see a distinction between, between A-B tests and feature value. I think my point is this. I've come to the conclusion that there is no distinction. I, I think we actually agree after all. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Thank you.